This is episode 4 of season 12, and it's kind of an unscheduled episode, and the the reason I'm doing this is because my other show, Chronicles and Commons, which is not a Linux podcast, it's about role-playing games and world-building and things like that, but but that that show uses the same tool as I, as I covered back in episode 2 called Podwrite to generate its website and XML feeds. And that one is on episode four. So what's been happening is that I'll, I'm, I'm publishing New World Order, and then I'll turn around and publish Chronicles and Commons. And and for one, it's three, and one there's it's four, or one it's two, and the other it's three. So it's you know it's it's that one offset, and it would be a lot easier for my brain if they were both at the same place. So I'm throwing in an extra extra episode of New World Order this week just to get myself on even on an even keel with Chronicles and Commons. And this episode, uh, being recorded just days after the previous one, is going to pretty much continue exactly as we were uh, with the Slackware packages that get installed at boot time. Or at, at, at install time, rather. I said boot time because there's a couple that that come into play very, very importantly and significantly at boot time. So the last time we left off with find or find utils really because it's a it's a, a collection of of a couple of different tools find and xargs or zargs however you say that uh, which we will cover more eventually because I want to I want to cover find in such a way that that makes it seem as significant as it really is I think it's a great tool. And, and I've never really talked about it a whole lot, but I use it, I use it quite frequently. So here's what we'll do. We'll go, we'll, we'll continue through this AAA package, or this A package set, rather, which began with AAAs. Uh, so this is the A package set. And, and then next episode, hopefully, we'll cover find in detail. And again, I, I implore you, if you have cool find tricks, tips, or hacks, send them to me. I would love to learn them, first of all, and I would love to cover them in the show. You never know. Maybe I'll be organized enough to actually say what trick or tip came from what listener. That would be pretty neat. Okay, so after find utils is the floppy package, and floppy is probably, I'm going to guess it's distinct to Slack. I mean, not distinct, but it's probably not on all of your your distros out there. Not anymore, anyway. It contains fdutils, uh, tools to test and format floppy disks, mtools, a collection of utilities to access fat disks without mounting them. I have no no real knowledge of how floppies work on Linux. I barely remember how floppies work on any other operating system. I used them, uh, not uh, you know the small the the 3.5 ones, or whatever, I think they were 3.5, the smaller ones, the, the ones that weren't actually physically floppy. I mean, the disk inside of the casing was, but you know what I mean. So um, I, I don't really know how that works, and and this is one of those packages that I would probably not install if I if I really thought about it, or if I really wanted to take the time to 
go through and not install certain packages. That said, this is 349 kilobytes on as a as a compressed tar archive, and honestly, it's just not worth my time to go through and kill that one. Next up is Gawk. Gawk is the GNU version of Awk, and Awk is, of course, the sort of famous programming language that most of us barely use. Well, not most of us. Many I I barely use and know that I should use a lot more. There's an obligatory um, reference I should make here, which is the Learning Awk series by Dave Morris on Hacker Public Radio. It's an in-depth series. It's up to part nine as of the recording of this episode. I don't know how much more there will be, but it is a fantastic series. I have recently downloaded each and every one so that I may listen to them as a series and kind of follow along, which I intend to do on the long plane ride that I have coming up uh, to Boston. I figure I'll take my pocket chip with a Bluetooth keyboard and listen to Learning Awk and hopefully internalize a lot of it because it's really something that that, that I've really been meaning to, to learn and I think that after a, after a while once you're, you're designing shell scripts that are in excess of a thousand lines I just think I think there's almost no excuse for for not using it's a double negative but th there's really no excuse for for not using awk because there there are certainly things in there that I'm doing that could be done more effectively with awk I'm I'm just betting certainly in a perfect world I would I would know awk and then I would I would do a whole show dedicated to awk because or an an episode dedicated to awk because certainly it's as important as finds at, at at the very least but I, I don't have that to offer you so hacker public radio learning awk mini series by Dave Morris and his, and his username is Dave Morris so if you you're not familiar with that show um, just just look at the complete episode guide do a search for learning awk or Morris and and he'll come up and again I mean that's it's incredible like the whole gawk program the, the whole language the compressed archive is less than a megabyte it's 1011 kilobytes it's astonishing how small these utilities are and how much how much they're capable of it's really 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 cool okay next after gawk is gen power gen power and this is something that I've never used. I, I, I imagine I could use it at some point in my life, but it's, I've not had the occasion. It's for UPS stuff, which is the, you know, those back battery backup units that you would have attached to a server that, or, or your, your home network if you have spotty power at home. I've never had one. I, I guess my power situation is fairly stable so far. And anyway, laptops kind of have backups just by the very nature of being laptops with batteries in them. So yeah, I've never actually used Gen Power. I, I've known people who have, and there's a you know there's a lot of configuration that you can do, and you hook it up to your battery backup system, and when something goes wrong, the battery backup system alerts your system, and your system takes some kind of action. But yes, I've never used it. Git Text. Git Text is a GNU package to help you internationalize the uh, the error message or the messages from a shell application so it's it's kind of the internationalization package for for shell based commands next up is getty-ps getty is an alternative to a getty which according to the man page is an alternative to getty lots of options here i guess 
uh, I just use standard, you know, whatever Getty ships with my distribution. So I guess in this case, I'm using a Getty. And if you don't know what Getty is or what a Getty or, or you, you Getty, what they, these things do, it's, it's the thing that, that actually launches the text console. You know, the thing that exists sort of under your graphic server when you hit control alt F one or F two or F three or up to F seven. Those are the, those are TTY sessions. And in, in the traditional, back in the traditional days, those are the ports to which you would have hooked up a physical terminal, like a VT100 or, you know, those classic sort of CRT monitors with a keyboard built in. Those things would have attached to a TTY port and would have talked to the, the computer, the mainframe or whatever they would have been called, uh, directly. And, and so on a modern Linux system, these are provided, but we, we don't really hook up a terminal to them typically. We, we don't, I mean, I don't even know what I, I don't even know where my serial in, input would be on my, my current computers. I mean, I'm, there must be one somewhere on the motherboard, but I, I wouldn't know how to find it. Well, I probably would just look at the documentation. But anyway, point is, we don't really do that anymore. We just, we, we hook up a keyboard and start typing. But those are the TTYs. And the fact that there are sessions on Control Alt F1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, that's controlled by whatever configuration you have for your, your A Getty or Getty or UU Getty, whatever you're using. And you can find that out a couple of different ways. Like on Slackware and, and, and anything that's not using systemd is, so I guess that would be what, uh, Gentoo and Linux from scratch at this point. Oh, Crux. Crux doesn't use it. Um, anyway, so it'd be slash Etsy slash init tab. And if you take a look at that and scroll down a little ways, you'll eventually, after you get all, you know, past the default init, uh, init, uh, run levels is what I'm trying to say. Uh, all the different run levels and, and the things that get started up, you know, are your, all your little init scripts, like your RC, RC files and all those things then you reach, you should reach at some point, something that says, that, that invokes some kind of Getty program. Now, on Slackware, the default, it looks like it's a Getty. So, in spite of the fact that this is Getty-PS saying that it's an alternative to a Getty, it uses, it actually uses a, a, a Getty, and it launches one with dash dash no clear at um, TTY1, and then two, three, four, five, and six. So all of those get launched, and then I'm assuming Zorg itself, the X session, uses uh, the, the seventh slot on that, you know, a, a seventh slot. So if six of them get launched for me by default, then I could change that. I could add more. I could I could take some away so that if I did Control-Alt-F1, 2, and 3, I would get it, but I wouldn't get it anywhere else. You know, so yeah, it's it's all controlled from, from init tab. Now, on a system D... Uh, distro, I was going to say system D system, but on a system D distro, you can find it in, it's a service, it would be a service, so it would be in s some place like slash USR slash lib slash system D slash system, and then slash, you know, something like getty dot service or, or getty app dot service, whatever. Uh, now you can change that, you could, you could modify that if you needed it to. By default, usually it's going to be something like environment equals term equals Linux, exec start equals 
um, dash slash sbin slash a getty. And then again, it's going to be a dash dash no clear percent i 38400 type equals idle, whatever. What you could do is modify that for for some purpose. For instance, when I was when I set up Raspberry Pi based appliances, the one of the things that I need these things to do is, and I say appliance like a, a kiosk, you know, something that that you are going to unplug the thing and then you you want to be able to plug it back in and have it boot straight into the program that you want it to 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 launch to. So what I do is I go into the Raspberry Pis uh, slash usr slash lib slash system d slash system slash getty at dot service and I modify the exec start from its default sbin a getty dash dash no clear percent i 38400 to sbin a getty dash dash auto login and then the name of the user and and all the rest of it and and what that does is it it launches the tty but it just it logs in you know whatever user i've set up for that little kiosk to kind of control all the processes and and to that user i i grant a bunch of sudo stuff so that they can do root like activities without passwords so that i can start system level services and gain gain access to to certain uh inputs and outputs and things like that so yeah you can you can modify what how your TTY thing acts, and and it's pretty useful, actually. If if you if you're you know if you have the use for it, it it's if you have the need for that sort of control, it, it's quite quite useful, and it and it's good to kind of not be afraid of that sort of thing. Yeah, and and I mean you know on a on a test box, it's not the worst thing in the world to experiment around with this low level stuff. You know whether it's your init system itself which I highly recommend, or whether it's just something simple like, hey, which, which TTY should I run? Uh, and I probably should, now that I'm talking about it, I should, I, should, I, should, I should try a different Getty. I mean, it's a Getty for now, but maybe tomorrow I'll use something else. That's a little bit about Getty, though. So after Getty is glibc, uh, there are a bunch of glibc-related packages well i mean really only two but but inside of those packages are a bunch of other things so there's the glibc solibs and it contains all the shared libraries and binaries and support files required to run pretty much most linux applications because most are linked to glibc that's just how they how they work usually so that's a pretty important little package right there and then there's a glibc-zone info which allows you to configure your time zone. So there you go, um, and and so that in that installs things like the the tz tz data and tz code, and a bunch of other things like that. I'm not really clear exactly on what relationship that has to glibc. I don't know if it's developed along with it or if it's just tied strictly to the glibc version. I'm not really sure. But glibc is 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 significantly important, and and to get a multi a multi architecture system going. For instance, on Slackware, we have just we have a 32-bit distro and we have a 64-bit distro, and you cannot run 64-bit applications on your 32-bit machine, and you cannot run 32-bit applications on your 64-bit machine. Just can't can't do it. But what you can do is add a bunch of extra packages provided very kindly by a user named Alien Bob. 
and and one of those packages that you install is a glibc package that was built you know as a 32-bit library so so then when you launch applications and they're looking for glibc or when you're when you when you launch 32-bit applications and they're looking for a 32-bit glibc they they actually have it glibc is i mean really it's just i mean it is the c library for for gnu so it's hugely important and it's one of those little things that most of us don't really think too much about but i guarantee you if you are trying to run some binary that was compiled for some other distro or a distro from two years ago and it doesn't launch then uh, one of the common reasons will be that it's expecting some previous version of glibc so in terms of i guess incompatibility that's that's one of the the lowest level incompatibility factors that you can introduce so managing glibc and knowing glibc is pretty important i would say okay i think it is time for some coffee <laughs> I hope your coffee was as good as my coffee was because it was very good. Uh, it really, it genuinely was. I, I know that you probably think, well, he's just recording and he didn't really have coffee, but I, I'm actually, I have coffee on hand at all times. This is not, this is not a gimmick so much as it is a reflection of reality. Okay, so GPM is the General Purpose Mouse Server, and this is one of those applications that I, I have a a love and hate relationship with because it's it's it it in theory it's super handy gpm gives you mouse uh, allows you to use your mouse without the x server it's brilliant um it, it's fantastic in theory and again every time i think okay i'm going to use this thing i never actually use it not for any good reason i think i've used it like five times and it's just I just forget about it when I'm in a text console. I just forget about the mouse. I, I cannot, or I'm into TTY, provided to me by a Getty. Um, I just forget about the mouse, and and it's it's kind of weird because I keep thinking, wow, GPM seems like it would be really handy. That'll be great. And and then I always forget. Or alternately, what I do is I'll I'll have GPM turned on, and then I'll I'll be working in in a, just a TTY. And inevitably, you know, my hand will brush up against the touchpad of the laptop, and it'll send my my mouse off in some random direction. And worst case scenario, it's it's an Emacs, and I accidentally send my mouse up to you know the top of the document, so I, I and I'm still typing, and then I look up and I've been typing out of order. So I, it's just one of those things that I nowadays I just turn it off, and I keep thinking, well, someday. Someday I'm going to use that thing, and I'm going to use it really well, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to be able to select text and, and paste it back into my document, and it'll be fantastic. And not, I never, I never do.
So after uh, GPM is GPTF disk, and that is of course the F disk utility, which includes G disk, CG disk, SG disk, and fixed parts, only with GPT awareness. So that's the GUID partition table. Uh, the, the master boot record MBR is something that I had to get used to as a computer user. I never understood what that was because I was very accustomed to Apple partitioning, which, of course, when I say familiar with our Apple partitioning, I mean I don't even really, I never even, you know, I would go into disk utilities and I would I would do things there, and I, I never really understood what I was doing or why I was doing it, and, and very, I, I don't believe I ever dealt with actual partitions. Everything was all or nothing. You know, the, you couldn't partition a disk. You you could format a disk, and, and that was all you could do. Not really, of course. I mean, you could, there were actually other things you could do, but but I never knew about it, and, and, and the Mac operating system never really encouraged you to learn about that sort of thing. Uh, until what what was that one thing that they were doing where they were they'd finally gone Intel because risk was too hot quote unquote um, which of course is nonsense but anyway um, they'd gone Intel and they were doing the whole we're gonna steal Windows market share which I guess they did pretty effectively um, and and they had the whole what was it called boot 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 doctor or or you know uh, whatever, multi-boot, you know, whatever whatever they were calling it, it was some, I, I think it was probably not even the word boot, because why would they use a term, a self-evident term in a technology? I, I'm not really sure why they would do that. So whatever system where they, they actually let people install Windows alongside of the Mac OS, then you kind of got a, a small flavor of like, oh, so this hard drive can be split. And I think that's probably in in Apple's entire existence. That was probably the first time that users actually became, you know, hardcore Mac users probably came, became aware of actual flexibility of their own hard drives, you know. So anyway, um, I digress. So GPT F disk allows you to to deal with GPT hard drives, and it's such a such a beautiful, beautiful or partitions rather, such a beautiful improvement over MBR and and I just, I, I think, I, I equate in my mind MBR, my, which I think is uh, probably built around Microsoft stuff, I, I would imagine, I don't know for sure, but I, I, I equate that to FAT itself, which I, I mentioned in the previous episode, where it was kind of like, we're all just locked into this this FAT thing. It's just, they're, they're, it's going to be a FAT file system forever. I mean, it's just part of computers now. And I feel like MBR was that, and and the fact that GPT is actually making headway above and beyond MBR is so wonderful because it, the the mind boggles to think that they would have built or that they would have yeah created a technology that that just couldn't take a hard drive partition greater than what is it two terabytes? You just can't do that with MBR. I'm sure there's some hack around it at this point, but but the the correct answer is just use GPT. So that's that's GPT. I'm not I'm not really a fan of F disk to be honest. Uh, I think I've used CG disk and that's not the worst thing in the world. But uh, parted, G parted, parted, whatever, uh, is is a really nice application. And and I say that meaning that it's properly flexible. You know, you a lot of people, especially even online, you'll you'll see 
uh, tutorials on on how to use Parted, and they'll they'll tell they'll take you down into sort of the interactive mode of Parted. And a lot of you a lot of people don't realize that that's you don't have to do that for Parted. You can you don't you can just uh, you can do it as a command. So for instance, for online again, you, you'll see something like Parted slash Dev slash SDA, and it takes you into that interactive mode of Parted. Where where you're at a prompt, it says you know parentheses parted parentheses, and then you can type in things like print, and it shows you all the partitions on whatever you know slash dev slash sda whatever. Uh, but but you don't have to do it that way, and that's really it, it, people don't seem to talk about that all that often. So you can just do parted slash dev slash sda, and then space, and then whatever command you want to do. So for instance, print, and then it prints the thing, and now you're back at your at your normal bash prompt. And then you could say parted. I'm not going to do this, but I, you could say like parted uh, slash dev slash sda space um, make part, and then the partition type that you want, and the fs type, and the start point and the end point, and all that. And you can just do it as commands. So so parted is is easily scripted. Whereas I'm I don't know that fdisk is quite the same way. And it might be, but certainly parted. Uh, once I discovered you could do just normal sort of commands at it, uh, I, I kind of default to parted pretty much ever since. So that's GPT-FDisk. Uh, I've, I've just said a whole lot about something that apparently I don't use. And then there's grep. Grep is fantastic. Grep, everybody knows grep. And again, I use grep a lot, and I, I'm, I sense that I probably overuse it, but, but it may not maybe maybe it's what what's expected but i do feel like there's probably something else that i could use other than grep sometimes maybe it's perl i don't know but grep uh is of course the gnu grep it's it's the it's the way that you can search regular expressions that's what grep is it's a great little application and i think a lot of people use it on a very rudimentary level i mean i'm not saying i'm super advanced myself but i do feel like a lot of people don't realize that they can do inverse greps and things like that you know exclusions and and fancy options like that it's a pretty handy little application and i will say i, I will say broadly that I, I i kind of i've seen other people use other operating systems and frankly sometimes i have no idea how they make how they find their way around their own data and i think a lot of people don't and and I, I've never ever since using Linux, I have I have felt closer to my data than ever, which sounds silly, but really, I mean, this data, whatever it may be, whether it's my my daily routine, my schedule, or whether it's something that I'm working on artistically or technologically, I feel like I know what data is on my computer. Generally speaking, I don't feel separated from all of my stuff. Whereas on previous operating system experiences that I've had, and certainly stuff that I see other people deal with on a day-to-day -day basis who, who aren't Linux users, I feel like their data is this wall, you know, this kind of wall of stuff that they don't even know where to begin. And, and nothing's, nothing's labeled, and if everything isn't exactly where they left it last time, they just don't even know where to find it. it it's just not even something that they have any clue about. And and they feel kind of helpless about it, from what I can tell, which is a which is a real pity. And and it's at that point that that you're you, you kind of feel like, well, what what good is this technology then? Because it seems like it's actually harming people in a weird way. You know, it's like it encourages you to do stuff, and then it makes you guess, what have you done? 
Where can you ever find it again? And I just feel like little tools like grep and find and, and, and things like that just help me really know what I have on my computer. And when I'm looking for something that I have a vague memory of, like, oh, didn't I jot a note about that thing, about foo, the other day, or the other month, rather, or last year? Yeah, I, I think I did. So that would be on, on, in my home directory somewhere. And I know that it would be a file of, of this type, probably with this kind of extension. And, and then I could grep for all the files that exist like that for this string, you know? And it's just, it's brilliant. I don't, I honestly do not know how people manage other systems. Okay. So I, I actually, I honestly don't think people do, but that's, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Anyway, after, after grep is grub, grub I do not use. I will just leave it at that. I will say that grub is a system I do not use. And then there's gzip. Gzip is a nice little application, a little bit wonky, a little bit strange. Sometimes it, it zips place things into places that you don't expect, and it's a little bit more difficult than you might think to get the thing to do an output to somewhere with a destination. Um, but once you figure it out, darn it, it does actually work. And I mean, I would certainly rather use gzip than, you know, zip. And then there's HDPARM, uh, which is hard drives parameters, which HDPARM does not, to me, say that. HDPARAM? That would say that to me, but HDPARM, not so much. It was written by Mark Lord. It provides a command line interface for various hard disk I.O. controls supported by the Linux ATA and IDI device driver subsystem. This is... Um, this is an important little application or command uh, system because it gives you all kinds of it gives you an interface to your hard drives and that's pretty important it does things like trimming uh you know for ssd uh things it does uh i think it does um uh you know like uh, it checks for bad bits and things like that it can it can actually uh, corrupt a sector, so that's interesting. You can actually make a bad sector. It's kind of dangerous. You probably wouldn't want to do that on a normal, everyday basis. But if you're trying to destroy data, you never know what you want to do. Um, yeah, and it, it it can control a bunch of hard drive stuff. So I mean, it can. It, it's for all kinds of things, really. It, it health checks and um, just random firmware commands, setting CD and DVD write speeds or drive speeds anyway uh yeah lots of different things and it's 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 an important i don't know how often one would interact with it directly but it might be something that you would you would want on your system certainly for other things to to use and i'm sure there's going to be someone who says oh yeah i use hd parm directly all the time that's something that i do on an everyday basis because people people tell me those things, you know. I'll say, "Oh, I never want to use a CD authoring application from the from the shell." That's that's I'm beyond that. Uh, and people say, "Oh, I use that all the time." Cobra too. Uh, HW data contains various hardware identification and configuration data, such as PCI ID database and monitors DB database. So HW data is, yeah, it is sort of what it sounds like, a hardware identification and, con uh, identification and configuration um, 
database essentially. I mean, it's it's a dump of data about hardware. Pretty useful. So that's all the we're up through the H's. So I'm gonna I think I'll I'll stop there for today. Okay, one more InfoZip. InfoZip's uh, zip and unzip utilities. So this is the the classic I guess original zip application. Zip is a compression and file packaging utility for Unix. VMS, MS-DOS, OS2, Windows, NT, Minix, Atari, and Macintosh, Amiga, and Acorn Risk OS. There you go. It is essentially tar and then a gzip command all in one. That's what zip is. I cannot stand zip. I honestly can't. And I know you're thinking, well, of course you wouldn't, Klaatu, because you hate all closed source things, supposedly, and you're really going to beat on that drum. But no, I really do. I do not like zip. And I was not always... I did not always hate zip. It's just if you actually use zip, it's a it's a real pain in the neck. It's a really weird interface like to to use. Um I mean you can you can redirect output, you can you can do things, but the the, the assumption that everything's going to be tarred up into a zip container, that kind of bugs me. I feel like I would like the flexibility to either say I don't want this in a container. I just want to take this data and compress it. And and I, I realize that's kind of a container, but it's it's at the same time it's not. Like zip zip has this weird yeah, like oh whether it's one file or five files, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of wrap it in this thing. And and I don't like that. Gzip I would rather I, I like how I can just grab something and and compress it directly as a file and then use tools like Zcat and Zless on it. That to me makes sense. But putting one file into a zip container and and making me do an unzip dash l in order to see what's inside of it that just bugs me. And there's a couple of other things that that bug me. I think the command to actually zip files always confuses me. It's one of those things that I'm always doing about five different ways. Now, admittedly, that's basically the same argument as people use against tar, and it's just it's because I'm not using it enough. But either way, it confuses me. I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Uh, and that's that's InfoZip. That is the official zip application. Love it or hate it, it's there. And, and it is something that one really just wants to have lying around, so it's it's good to have. Because, I mean, a lot of people do use it all the time. To a lot of people, that is file compression. Okay, that is everything for today, I think. Next episode will either be the big find applica- the find feature, or it'll be more of the same. Uh, it just kind of depends on, on on my schedule. Next week I am flying, at the end of this week rather, in four days, uh, I am flying out to Boston. So we'll see what that does to my podcasting schedule. Hopefully it will not affect things. I've tried to plan ahead for that. Uh, but if if I go away for a week or two, uh, just know that I'm in Boston um, and and that's thrown some kind of wrench into my schedule. So don't do not worry. I will be back. Thank you for listening, and uh, this has been Episode 4 of the New World Order.
Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. I could relax. <laughs>